Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Revelation. And if you notice, I said the book of Revelation. How many people have called it Revelations? You hear it all the time. Let's turn to the Revelations. Well, it's the book of Revelation. And it says the revelation of St. John the Divine. But, you know, it's really the revelation of Jesus Christ. The first verse. If you're looking at your Bible, it says the revelation of Jesus Christ. And uh, St. John the Divine, of course, is a, we speak of him in that way, but uh, John was just a believer like the rest of us, as all of us. We're all saints. And uh, we know that he was an apostle. And we know he had a special place uh, with the Lord because he's the one that leaned upon the breast of the Lord at, at the supper table and knew the secrets of Jesus. And yet, sometimes people over-evaluate those uh, men of faith and the apostles themselves. So, he was a saint, just like all believers. And all believers are saints. If you look in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2, it says, "...under the church of God which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours." And you'll see even in this first chapter where John did not want to claim any special place above other people. So it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. As you look at verse 1, it says, "...the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John." Now the word revelation here, the revelation of Jesus Christ means the revealing or the unveiling or the manifestation of Jesus Christ. So Christ is the one that is revealed in various aspects of uh, this prophecy of this book. We notice in verse 1 that it says, "...which God gave unto him." We believe it was given by the Father to the Son. Now, I read some information not too long before I came to church tonight that was telling us that Jesus gave this revelation to Himself. Well, I, I believe that it's just exactly like the Bible teaches here, that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are the three persons of the Godhead. And it's not that Jesus gave Himself this revelation, even though He was God. It says God, it says which God gave unto Him. We know that the three, in fact, the Scripture we read about His baptism, we know that the voice from heaven came which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And so the voice from heaven was the voice of God the Father. And the Holy Spirit came and lighted upon Him in the form of a dove. So we have the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I believe this will hold true as we teach and study the book of Revelation. Now, Jesus Christ is the one great theme of this book. It tells us all throughout about what He did and what He is unto us. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, and the purpose to show unto his servants the things are things which must shortly come to pass. That is, the things of the future. And in John's day, we know that the churches that he's speaking of, he speaks to the letters to the, in the letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, and we have those things that we'll deal with when we get to them. But... After the church age, there were future things that would come to pass. And he's talking about things that would come to pass after this church age. And I want you to notice it says, And he sent and signified it. 
by his angel unto his servant John. So it came through the angel of God, a messenger of God, to John as a servant. His servant John. Or John was a faithful servant. He was an apostle. And notice it says, he sent and signified it. The word signified means signified. Or it's made known, the things in this book are made known many times instead of literal things. Many things are literal. They literally happen. But some things are known by signs and symbols. Now then, we're not left to think out the meaning of these symbols. There's so many people that have tried to think out the meaning of these symbols. And then, when you do that, one man's opinion is just as good as another. If you think that... uh, the locusts represent one thing. We've got fellows that have preached on the television in times past, and they say, well, the sound of those locusts, and that's like a helicopter, and the breastplates of those locusts, and so on and so forth. And they give all kinds of meanings to all kinds of things in the book of Revelation. Some of these things may be very literal. Others of the things find a symbolism in the Word of God. But every symbol that is explained or referred to in some other place in the Bible. And so when we get over here talking about the elders and we talk about the 24 elders, we'll go back to the Old Testament and find a a group of elders, of 24 elders in David's uh, reign. And they were priestly men. And we get the representation of what the Bible teaches by doing that. So when we look for at a sign or a symbol here, or look at something in the book of Revelation, we're going to look for a meaning that we find somewhere else in the Bible to help us to understand what it's talking about. So it says in verse 2, Who bear record, his servant John, in the last part of verse 1, Who bear record, or witness, of the word of God, and of the testimony of Jesus Christ, and of all things that he saw. John was one that was a faithful witness of the Lord. And he bear witness of the word of God. You know, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. And so, you and I need to stick with the Word of God in all things, because we have so much speculation in the world today. I just heard on the CNN news just before I came. Well, it wasn't CNN. Another news channel was on at the time I left the house. And uh, some fella in our state here, and I believe they said Albuquerque, had gone to, uh, no, he went to, uh, from Denver, he went from Denver to uh, uh, Jerusalem. He's actually going to try to get a lot of people to die with him over in Jerusalem. He's going there for the purpose of dying. And it sounds like one of these deals where a cultish leader is going to lead a lot of people to their death because he thinks that that's the thing to do. And where people read stuff like this into, into the Bible, I do not understand. I don't know where they get it at all. Now, if Jesus comes, well and good, because we don't have to die to go up. We can go up while we're living. And uh, the Bible says the dead in Christ shall rise. And by the way, you'll go up whether you're in Jerusalem or Denver. So you can go back to Denver and, and still go up with the Lord. And you don't have to die to do it. And, uh, you know... There's all kinds of crazy things going on in the world today. 
And I don't believe that they're really taught here in the Bible. Let's notice this. Who by record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ. He was faithful in these things. And of all things that he saw. Now here's a threefold blessing. Look at verse 3. You have a threefold blessing. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy. And keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. Reading and hearing and keeping. That read and hear and keep. My wife said that one time that I taught this through the book of Revelation, I said, read and heed and bleed. And that may be true. If you read it and you heed it and you keep it, you may be in for some suffering if you really stand for what the Word of God says. So it is a threefold blessing. And I want you to notice it says, blessed is he that readeth. Happy, or there's a blessing for the person that reads the the book of Revelation. I remember years gone by, certain churches would not touch the book of Revelation. They didn't want you to read it. In fact, the Southern Baptists used to, and I'm not getting on them. I used to be a Southern Baptist. But they never used it in their Sunday school. They said it's too much. The the, uh, headquarters in, in, uh, where is it, Nashville or back in Tennessee, would not put out. Sunday school quarterlies with the book of Revelation in it. They taught everything else. But that's that's kind of fantastic, isn't it? It's kind of far out. Not to teach the whole Bible when we're told here in the verse itself that there's a blessing to the person that reads it. And those that hear it, that would be the teaching of it. And then those that obey it or keep it and do the things that are written therein. For the time is at hand. Now then, in verse 4 it says, John to the seven churches which are in Asia. These were seven literal churches that were pointed out and chosen to be given the message that we'll find in chapters 2 and 3. And so John is writing to these seven churches. And by the way, it is not an invisible church or a universal church. A lot of people have the idea that there's one great church. No, there's not. He said the seven churches, plural. The seven churches in Asia. These churches were uh, less than a hundred miles apart. And there were many churches beyond and far beyond. And many within that compass of that area as well that were not named. And for a specific reason, John... Uh, I mean, the Lord chooses these seven churches to reveal unto John these letters and give him these letters because they seem to make up what goes on in all churches at various times. You know, these letters to these churches are fourfold in their application. And we'll say more about it when we get into the second and third chapter because the second and third chapter completely uh, are about the seven churches. Now then, these letters apply to local churches, the actual churches that are addressed. These personal letters that we find in chapters 2 and 3 when we get there are applied to all the individuals within the churches because it says to everyone that hears, he's to respond. Let him that heareth. And then they're an admonition to these churches to take the advice that's given, the exhortation, the edification, and also the Words of condemnation. Jesus first commends these churches in chapters 2 and 3, and then he condemns them for the wrong that's there. And so when we find that we look at these churches, we'll find those messages coming out. And then fourthly, in the way, not only local and personal and to admonish, but prophetic. These, four, these seven churches set forth 
the seven phases of spiritual history of the church from the day of Pentecost, the beginning of the church, when it was sent out to do the work of the Lord, after it was filled with the Holy Spirit, until Christ returns. And therefore, the churches are mentioned in chapters 2 and 3, and it tells of the things that they're to be doing, and then chapter 4 begins the future things. We'll talk about the key to these uh, lessons in a little bit. Let's notice in verse uh, 4 again. John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come. And from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Now there are not seven individual spirits. The Bible teaches us to not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. It says, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you're sealed into the day of redemption. But it's the sevenfold plenitude of that one Spirit, the Spirit of God, or the Holy Spirit. If you go back in the book of Isaiah, chapter 11, verse 2, when it speaks of Christ that will come, it says in verse 2, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Here's the sevenfold plenitude. Isaiah 11, verse 2. Now notice. It says, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. That's three things. The spirit of counsel and might. That's five. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. So you see a sevenfold plenitude of the Holy Spirit that is spoken of. And it's not like there are seven individual spirits before his throne. But in the sevenfold capacity of of the Holy Spirit. Verse 5 says, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness... And the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth. He's the faithful witness here on the earth. He is the first begotten of the dead, and he ascends to heaven. And when he comes again, he's going to come as prince of the kings of the earth. He will come as king of kings and lord of lords. It says also in verse 5, Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. We can identify with the gospel message that is given to us through Jesus Christ. Can we not? He loved us. And he washed us from our sins in his own blood. That's why we sing songs like Washed in the Blood of the Lamb. That's why we sing about Christ loving us. That's why the Bible teaches that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. So he cleansed us from our sins in his own blood. In verse 6, says, And hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. If you look over in the fifth chapter, just glance over there, if you will, quickly. And verse 10, it says, And has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. When you get to chapter 5, verse 9 is telling about the redeemed singing the song of redemption. Let's read verse 9 and 10 together. Chapter 5, verse 9 and 10. It says, And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain, look, and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. That's a promise to the redeemed that will come back with the Lord in glory. Because they... In the fifth chapter, the context tells us that they're already with the Lord in heaven. And those redeemed in the fifth chapter, singing that song, when Jesus comes back in the 19th chapter, will come back with him, and they shall live and rule and reign on the earth. 
in the 20th chapter of the book of Revelation. So hold your place in chapter 1, always where we're studying. So look at verse 6 again. And hath made us kings and priests. You see verse 5 tells us about redemption through the blood. And verse 6 says, And hath made us kings and priests unto God and His Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now then verse 7 says, Behold, He cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see Him. And they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds. Now, if you look in the book of uh, Daniel, chapter 7 and verse 13, Daniel 7, verse 13, it says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. So he's coming with clouds. Matthew 24. Matthew 24 and verse... Let me give you this. Matthew 24 and verse 30 says this, And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now, while we're there... On verse 7 in Revelation chapter 1. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and never I shall see him. Let's think of this for a moment. We think of the second coming of Christ. But here, it's not the rapture of the saints. It's his coming in glory, in power and great glory. That reference I gave you even in Matthew 24 is not referring to the saints being caught up into heaven when Jesus comes for his own. It's referring to His coming in power and great glory at the end of the tribulation. The rapture is not in view. Though the rapture is a phase of the second coming of Christ, He's coming for His own. That's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But He's coming with His own in Revelation chapter 19. And so when He says, Behold, He cometh with clouds, it's not talking about the fact that when Christ appears in heaven... And the dead in Christ rise, and the living believers are changed. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It's not talking about that time, behold, he cometh with clouds. But it's talking about when he comes in power and great glory. Now that's where a lot of confusion ends up when we think of the second coming of Christ. If you think of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it says, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that's the dead in Christ, that you saw or not, even as others which have no hope. And then it goes on to say, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with Him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent or precede or go before, prevent them which are asleep. It says, For the... Dead in Christ shall rise first, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. That corresponds with Revelation chapter 4, where John was caught up into heaven. And so we see that the rapture, this rapture that we're talking about, of the saints, of believers, is not this coming with the clouds in power and great glory that we find in verse 7 here, Revelation chapter 1. It's a different phase. The second phase of Christ's coming is when He comes back in Revelation 19. And He comes with His saints. And He comes with the armies of heaven that follow Him. So we need not confuse that. And I want you to notice here in the context, it says, And every eye shall see Him, and they also which pierced Him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of Him. You look in the book of Zechariah, chapter 14, 
Zechariah chapter 14, let me give you this. In verse 4, it says, And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a great, very great valley. And half of the mountain shall remove toward the north and half of it toward the south. So when he comes back, literally, to this earth, and he comes with the clouds, and every eye shall see him, he's going to stand on the Mount of Olives. He's going to really come back to this earth. Not The saints are not going to be caught up at that time and be with the Lord in heaven. But he's coming back to the earth. And in, in Zechariah chapter 12, also tells us about this particular event. In verse 10, it says, And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. Notice that. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. Isn't that what it says in Revelation chapter 12? I mean, chapter 1 verse 7. The same thing it says in Zechariah, that they will look upon the one who who is pierced. Here in the Old Testament is speaking of God. God says they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And it's applied to Jesus there in Revelation chapter 1 verse 7. They shall look upon him whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as for an only son. It says every eye shall see him and they also which pierced him. And it says in all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. You look at verse 8. He says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord. He's the first and last. He's the beginning and the ending. The Alpha and Omega. These are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. He's the beginning and ending of all things. He is before all things and He is at the end of all things. Which is and which was and which is to come. The Almighty. He's the beginning and the ending. John chapter 1 says, In the beginning, the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. And the Bible tells us here that He is the everlasting, that He is the end of all things. Verse uh, 9 says, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation. Remember when we first started out, said the revelation of St. John the Divine? But here, he, John himself says, I'm your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. Was in the isle that is called Patmos. This is a little island off the coast of Asia in the Aegean Sea. It says, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. John was banished to the Isle of Patmos because of his testimony and because of his faithfulness to the word of God, because of his preaching the word of God. And he says that's why he was there. And he was there for a special reason to give us this book of Revelation. John wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st and 2nd and 3rd John and the book of Revelation. Five books in the New Testament. The Gospel of John and the first three and the three epistles and the book of Revelation. I want you to notice in verse 10 it says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now the Lord's day is the first day of the week. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. It's a good day to be in the Spirit, isn't it? This is the day of Christ's resurrection. In the book of Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, if you want to look at it, Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, notice that the believers... It says, upon the first day of the week, this is the Lord's day, when the disciples came together to break bread, the disciples here are saved ones. Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. So you find here 
that the Lord's day and the first day of the week when Jesus was resurrected are one and the same. Some have tried to make this uh, in Revelation 1 verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, meaning the day of the Lord. That's altogether different. The day of the Lord is different than the Lord's day. When you study the day of the Lord, a title is given to that day. In the Old Testament, it's a day of sorrow. It's a day of darkness. It's a day of judgment. It's a terrible, great and terrible day of the Lord. So it's, it's a day that we're not talking about here. And John was simply, on the first day of the week, on the Lord's day, uh, filled with the Holy Spirit, and being led along by the Holy Spirit, and being given the message that he will write down by the Holy Spirit. And he heard behind, and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. <clears throat> God's voice is trumpet-like. It has a trumpet sound. A trumpet is given to sound a warning. A trumpet is given to call uh, God's people together in the Old Testament. It, it is given to direct and order the people in an orderly fashion. So it had many uses. But when he heard this voice as a sound of a trumpet, this voice was saying, I am Alpha and Omega. So this is Christ, the first and the last. <coughs> and what thou seest, he says, right in the book. That's what we have, the book of Revelation. John actually envisioned or saw all the things that we have recorded in the book of Revelation. Not just the first chapter and the first vision of Christ, but he... He saw this whole thing as a panorama of all the things that are recorded in the book of Revelation. And God says to him, the Lord says to him, I am Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest, write in the book. Now look, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia. These seven churches, these seven local churches. And he names them unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. It says, And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. <coughs> when he turned to see, he saw these seven lampstands, or golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. So Jesus is seen in the midst of these seven churches. He's seen standing in the midst of of these seven churches. And this is the vision that uh, John saw of Christ glorified and of His majesty. And it's worth taking note of each and everything that we look at about Christ. He says, In the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. The Son of Man is seen in glory. But this was His name. He was called the Son of Man on this earth. Christ is seen on earth in His humiliation as the Son of Man. He's seen in glory as well as the Son of Man. God the Father says He's com committed all judgment unto the Son. And He's coming as the Son of Man to judge. So this is a wonderful title that we find. All through the Gospels, especially the Gospel of Luke, Jesus preferred the title of the Son of Man. <coughs> and the vision of Him and His appearance was this. He was clothed with a garment down to the foot. This was a priestly and kingly garment. And it says, And gird about the paps, or breasts, with a golden girdle. This, this golden girdle speaks of divine service. This priestly garment that's girded about his breasts speaks of his eternal love, everlasting love. The Bible teaches that he loved us before the foundation of the world. 
the Bible teaches that Jesus is the one that is our priest and our king. The girdle in the Old Testament, the priestly girdle in the book of uh, Exodus chapter 28, there was there were garments for the priest. And we'll find that in verse 29, it says, And Aaron shall bear the names of the children of Israel in the breastplate of judgment upon his heart when he goeth into the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually. We find in verse 12 of chapter 28 of Exodus, And thou shalt put two stones upon the shoulders of the ephod for the stones of memorial unto the children of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord upon his two shoulders for a memorial. If you look back in verse 9 and 10, it says, And thou shalt take two onyx stones and grave on them the names of the children of Israel, six names on one stone, six names on the other, <clears throat> six names of the rest on the other stone according to their birth. And then this ephod that was to be put upon the shoulder of the priest was to have the six names on one shoulder, six names on the other shoulder. So that's the twelve tribes of the children of Israel upon the shoulders. Then in verse 29 it says, that this breastplate would also have uh, the names of the children of Israel. And it tells that their names will be in uh, rows of three and four, making twelve on the breastplate. And all this symbolizes the fact that Jesus bears us upon his shoulders for strength, all of us, as well as upon his heart in love. And when you see over here in the book of Revelation that he was girded about, girded about the paths with a golden girdle. Not only is he serving as a priest, but he's our great high priest. And he has us ever before him on, it doesn't mention the shoulders right here, but it does mention the breastplate. We're upon his heart. <clears throat> if, if in the Old Testament, <clears throat> the priest had all the names of the children of Israel, they were all represented there. In those stones with the names upon his shoulders and upon his heart, upon the breastplate, then Jesus is our great high priest, has all of our names and bears us continually in his presence, upon his shoulders and upon his heart. If you follow on down and you see the rest of the information here about the vision of John, notice in, uh, oh, keep your place in Revelation chapter 1. Notice it says, His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. Now, this speaks of the fact that Christ is the Ancient of Days. This speaks of His age. We gave you a reference in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13, where it says, I saw in the night visions, behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days. He came to the Ancient of Days there, but He is the Ancient of Days here. Now, how do we know that Christ is the Ancient of Days? How do we know that this... Uh, white hair, his head and his hairs were white like wool. When you get older, we speak of men that have been here, their hair turns gray, they're men of, we say, many winters, and they're getting older in uh, years. Check it out, I better look. But anyway, we know that Jesus, in Micah 5.2, when it speaks of even his birth, let me read Micah 5 too. When it speaks of the prophecy of the place of the birth of Christ, notice it connects him with being eternal or infinite. So this would speak of ancient of days. Let me read Micah 5 verse 2. It says, But thou Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah. Now when you're talking about the place of Christ's birth, 
Bethlehem, Ephrata, though it's little of the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee, out of Bethlehem, shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel. We know that this speaks of the birth of Christ because in Matthew chapter 2, this is what the uh, scribes and the ones gave to the wise men to prove where Jesus was born, if you remember when we were teaching on the birth of Christ just before the Christmas time. But it says, whose goings forth, it speaks of this one that is to be born, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. So he would be the Ancient of Days. From the days, if you have a marginal reference there in Micah 5, 2, it says, from the days of eternity, whose goings forth have been from everlasting, or from the days of infinity. We gave you one time referring to the birth of Christ, what Adam Clark said about it. When he used these words from everlasting, he says, from the days of all time, from time as it came out of eternity. That is, there was no time in which he was, has not been going forth, <clears throat> coming in various ways to save men. And he that came forth the moment that time had its birth was before that time in which he began to come forth. He had to be before that time. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, see, to save the souls that He had created. He was before all things, and He is the Creator of all things, so He is eternal, and not a part of what was created. All being but God has been created. Whatever has not been created is God. But Jesus is the Creator of all things, therefore He is God. Therefore He is the Ancient of Days. For He cannot be a part of His own work. You know, you have uh, certain groups that teach that Jesus uh, had a beginning that God made His only begotten Son. The Bible teaches that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So, that is pre-existence. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, that's coexistence. And the Word was God, that's self-existence. And that's what Jesus is spoken of, because it says in that same chapter... The Gospel of John chapter 1. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus came from heaven. He says He came down from heaven to give life into the world. He said He was with the Father before the world began. He says, Father, in His great high priestly prayer, He says, glorify Thy Son with a glory that, listen, He had with Thee before the world began. Now, if we don't see Jesus as the eternal, the Bible shows us here that He's the Ancient of Days. Revelation 1, verse 8, uh, verse 14, rather. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. That shows that they had penetrating power. Fire illuminates. Fire, in some instances, cleanses. Fire warms us. But his eyes were as a flame of fire that penetrates. And his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. Now then, brass in the Bible usually generally means judgment. Remember, he is the one that is going to come as judge, as if they burn in the furnace. And his voice is the sound of many waters. Voice speaks of the power of God. I want to give you some things concerning the voice. Look at Psalm, there are two Psalms, you can look at them if you will. Psalm 93, verse 4. Psalm 93, verse 4. It says, well, verse 3 and 4 would be good because they have it both. Verse 3 and 4. It says, the floods have lifted up. O Lord, the floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their waves. 
The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters. So his voice and the voice of the Lord is higher and mightier than the voice of many waters. The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters, yea, than the mighty waves of the sea. Now look at Psalm 29. Here's a very wonderful one. Psalm 29, verse 2. It says, The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thundereth. So when you speak of the voice of God, the God of glory thundereth. The Lord is upon many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. So He thunders. He's in power. It's like the sound of many waters. How many of you have ever been out on the ocean when it's roaring? Or by the, even by the seacoast when all the roar and you hear the noise of the waters. They sound very powerful, even just the, the noise. Well, God's voice is, The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thundereth. The Lord is upon many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaketh the cedars. You talk about the cedars of Lebanon, the mighty cedars. The voice of the Lord breaketh the cedars. Yea, the Lord breaketh the cedars of Lebanon. He maketh them also to skip like a calf. Lebanon also. Lebanon and Siren, like a young unicorn. The voice of the Lord divideth the flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shaketh the wilderness. You see the power of God's voice? It says, The Lord shaketh the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord maketh the hinds to calf and discovereth the forest. Now look, And in His temple doth every one speak of His glory. In the tabernacle, if you go back and study the tabernacle, everything there speaks of God's glory. Now, back in Revelation chapter 1, and we're looking at this vision of Christ that John saw, and it says in verse 15, and his voice is the sound of many waters. And we said it's powerful. God's voice is in his word. And his word is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. Now then look at verse 16. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. Now, the sharp sword speaks of the Word of God as well. All of these things are symbolical. Remember we studied earlier in verse 1 that he sent and signified it, or gave symbols of what he would see. Signified it by his servant John, by the angel unto his servant John. And this is what John saw. Christ and a sharp sword out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. The Bible is compared. Hebrews 4.12 says, the word of, Listen, the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So God's word is like that. It's powerful. Now verse uh, 16 also says, And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. Remember the Bible says that the sun of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. The S-U-N, the sun of righteousness. That's in the book of Malachi. We also find it uh, in the book of Matthew and Mark and Luke. But Matthew chapter 17, uh, Mark chapter 9, and Luke chapter 9, you have the story or the incident of the transfiguration. In Matthew chapter 9, it says that Jesus went up into a high mountain of part and was transfigured before them. And it says, And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. So we find here that his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. Remember Peter, James, and John, they fell to the ground. Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus on that mount of transfiguration. And 
Peter gets up and he says, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias. And then that voice from heaven rang out and says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye Him. 